Well, Harvest, good morning. How we doing? Are, are, are we awake? You were already yawning as I walked up here. Did you, did you know that I knew that? It's good to see you guys. Grab a Bible, turn to John's 9, John the 9th chapter. If you need a Bible, there's going to be ushers coming down the road. Just raise your hands. They'll get a Bible in front of you. Um, we are going to be working through this whole chapter, so I will be talking fast today. We've got a lot of work to do. As you find your way to John 9, I was thinking this week, one of the things that I think has happened as I've gotten older, I've become a pretty good liar. I think lying, probably like anything, with practice, you get better at it. Wouldn't you agree? My kids, when they were younger, um, they, they were terrible liars. And uh, you would ask them a question, and they would begin to fidget, and they couldn't make eye contact. They'd be looking all around the room. They wouldn't look at you, and it's like, okay, we, we know something's up. If you ask them a question like, um, hey, did you finish your homework? And their answer was like, no. Like their voice went up an octave. That was a pretty good tell that they were lying. One of my kids, um, it was so funny, every time she would lie, her face would turn real blotchy, and her neck would get all red, and it's like, girl, you got to learn to do better. And uh, they did. They got better at lying as they got older, as they got into high school. I, I, I've told this story before, but um, when Cal was in high school, um, our family, our kids grew up on a property that is where Ferris, south of Grand Haven, dead ends into Lakeshore. My father-in-law was a wealthy man. He owned a big property right there along the lake, and that's where we raised our kids on his property. Well, the UPS guy that delivered to us there. His name was Joe. Somehow he became extended family through friendship with my wife. Came to our house one day. We were selling my father-in-law's house. He had passed away. And Joe said, hey, can I play a prank on one of the people on my routes? She's a kind of a busybody, is always telling gossip. I want to just tell her that I delivered a package up to your dad's house, but it was addressed to Brad Pitt and Janice, Jennifer Aniston. Would it be okay if I did that? So he asked permission. We're like, oh, sure, that's fine. Have fun with it. Well, fast forward like two weeks. It's the talk of the town. I think the Tribune picked it up. Cal went to school one day. Everybody was talking about Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston moving to town. That was kind of the buzz in the classroom. And the teacher kind of outed Cal. He looked at Cal and Cal said, well, Cal, you live on that property. That's your grandpa's house. What do you know? And all the kids looked at Cal and they're like, you're rich? And they're like, where did your father-in-law get all his money? And my son, Calvin, without break, without a hesitation, he goes, well, my father-in-law was the head of organized crime in Chicago from 1969 to 1978. <laughs> That's a good lie. Because a good lie has an element of truth. He was rich. We were from Chicago. And the best part about that lie, the kids didn't just wander onto our property anymore. It gave us some space, you know. They weren't going to do that. But, but a good lie has an, has an element of the truth. And, and, and here's what I've noticed over time. Some people get so good at lying, they actually start to lie to themselves. Have you ever ran into this? They, they lose track of what is really true. They get lost. They lose track of reality. That can be scary, especially when it comes to our faith. In the Gospel of Matthew... Jesus, or Matthew records Jesus' first sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapters 5 through 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and at the end of that message, Jesus says these words. I think they're some of the scariest verses in the entire New Testament. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are scary verses. It's talking about people who reach a day of final judgment and they believe that they were saved and they find out that they're not. And what makes those verses particularly scary, he's not talking to some ordinary Joe, your, your buddy at the bar. He's talking to church people. He's talking to church leaders, to pastors. And he's saying, some of you are going to get to a day of final judgment. And up until that day, you believe that you were saved, but you're not. And this is not a moment that you want to roll the dice on. This is something that you want to be sure of. This morning, the message is very simple. It's entitled, Am I Saved? I didn't add a big idea like we normally do, but if there was a big idea, here's what it would be. Am I saved? If there was a big question, am I saved? And the goal today, as we work our way through chapter 9, what you're going to see is you're going to be introduced to a bunch of different characters throughout the narrative of chapter 9. None of them are given names. Their names are unimportant. The individuals are unimportant. What is important is they represent different outlooks, different views, different lenses on which they view the world and they view life, and not all of them have saving faith. Not all of them have a faith that will get them home. So we're going to work our way through. I'm going to pick it up in John uh, 9, verse 1. You guys ready to go? If you're ready, say go. Okay, let's go. Verse 1. It says this, And as he passed by, speaking of Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So Jesus sees a blind man, but the first kind of characters that we engage with are the disciples. They're the first members of the cast of this story. And the disciples ask a question which reveals their heart. They see a man blind from birth, and they say, okay, whose sin caused this? Was it his sin, or was it his parents' sin? And what they, in essence, are believing in, their worldview, is something I can just label karma, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So they see a man who's struggling with an infirmity, and immediately their mind concludes, this is due to somebody's sin. Maybe it's his sin, or maybe it's his parents' sin. And again, remember, a good lie always has an element of the truth. We're told in Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. And we could all in this room agree that your actions and your choices, they have consequences. If you've attended Harvest for any length of time, you know that here we say without apology, we have these catchphrases like choose to sin, choose to suffer, or blessing follows obedience. We do believe that the choices that we make have consequences. So there's an element of truth to what the disciples are saying. They could also be reflecting on a verse all the way back in Exodus where this warning is given, the sins of the fathers will be visited upon their children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Again, an element of truth. Is this man's infirmity a cause of the parent's sin? And listen... In this room, we come from a myriad and variety of different family backgrounds. 
Some in this room, I was at small group last night, we were talking about the families that we grew up in, and we were talking about, hey, I grew up in a Christian family. Well, praise God if that's your story. And others were saying, like, I I grew up in a family where on Sunday you couldn't wear jeans and you couldn't watch TV and you could ride your bike as long as you were alone. You couldn't go over to the friend's house. Very strict Christian families. Others have grown up in families of broken homes. The parents were separated. You were in single families or bouncing back and forth between the different parents. Like, all of us have different backgrounds, and it's true that our family and the families that we were raised in, that has an impact on us. If you grew up in a family that struggled with alcohol or with addictions, that can be something that through the generations you might struggle with. If you grew up in a family where it was a very angry family and your parents, your mom or your dad had a temper, that could be something that you battle as well. So for sure, sins follow through the generations. But hey, really good news, we've got a God who has the power to break through all of that, amen? But There is an element of truth to what the disciples are voicing, but I'll tell you, karma taken to the extreme of that question, it's dangerous and it's wicked. Like like they see a man struggling and they just become, he becomes an object of debate. Here's four concerns that I have when you have this outlook of karma that you just believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. First of all, it leads to a judgmental attitude that lacks compassion. They didn't even know this man. And yet, there they sit on the sidelines debating the cause of his condition. Secondly, it leads to frustration due to unmet expectations. So you believe good things happen to good people. What are you going to do when you're doing everything that you can, everything that you can to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but life just seems to be going from bad to worse? Or... What about you see the person in your neighborhood or who you work with that is just completely carnal, doing everything wrong, but they seem to be receiving blessing at every turn? Like, what are you going to do when that equation breaks down in your experience? Here's the third thing. If we're not careful, if we believe in karma, we can develop a victim's mentality. Before we poke fun at the disciples' question... I would just say that their question is very typical. It is the exact thing that has been embraced in our culture today. That our culture will tell everyone, well, you're just a victim of either your sin or someone else's sin. And I can say this because I'm a grandparent and I have older kids. Hey, parents, you're going to come to the point where your kids' problems are your fault. Have you got there yet? Because that's what the world is going to tell them. And it doesn't matter what they're family background is, that all of a sudden we're blame shifting, that every issue that somebody has is someone else's fault, and it is developed within our culture of victim mentality that is very, very dangerous. It is unhealthy if you look at your life and every time you come into a difficult situation, you view yourself as a victim. Jesus is going to address that in just a second, but it can develop a victim mentality. But here's the fourth thing, and this is probably most important karma this idea that good things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people it doesn't get you home it's not a faith that saves if if some of you choose to attend my funeral and you feel compelled to tell somebody at my funeral oh he was a good man i'm really good with that go ahead and say that because there'll probably be other people saying different things go ahead and like 
add to that side of the commentary. But don't put your faith for me in whether or not I was a good person because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Heaven is not home to good people. Heaven is home to people who've recognized their sin and they've done something with it. They've repented. They've called out to Jesus to save. It's not about good people or bad people. Saved people, people that have called to Jesus as their Savior, to them, that is a saving faith that gets you home. It's interesting. Jesus comes back and he says this in verse 3. Jesus answered, answering their question, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a great answer. There's a part of me that wants to just park the plane right here and spend the rest of the message here. Could it be that your circumstances, that the struggle that you find yourself in this morning, that the thing in your life that's difficult, that's the very thing that God has given you to give him glory, not that he gets you out of it, but to give you glory through that circumstance. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis writes in a book that he wrote that was called The Problem with Pain, and he's answering this question, why does God allow suffering and he says this, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what Jesus just said is he said, this man's difficult circumstances are not the cause of his sin or his parents' sin, but the reason that he was born blind is simply this, that the power and the works of God might be displayed through him. Could it be that the circumstances you find yourself in are actually your platform, your megaphone to give glory to God and his faithfulness and love through those circumstances. Instead of how did I get here, maybe a little bit more, how does God want me to use this circumstance to give glory to his name? And Jesus goes on in verse 4, he says, we must Work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Here's what Jesus just said. The whole purpose that I came to earth, everything that I'm doing in my ministry, I do it for one reason, because this is the will of the Father. This is what he's asked me to do. And one of the things that I love about Jesus is he never asks us to do things that he wasn't willing to do himself. And then he attaches an urgency to it. He says this, who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Life's short, man. The years are racing by. 2023, rearview mirror. We're starting 2024. Another year, another week, another month. Others are, is there anyone in the room who wants to see God do some really great things in your life this year in 2024? That you really want to experience change? That you want to see him do a work in your kid's life or in the life of your family, in your marriage? What are you doing about it? Like maybe you need to make a decision to roll up your sleeves. If you're looking for God to do something, maybe he's calling you to roll up your sleeves as well. In verse 6, Jesus said these things. The next thing he does, we see he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now, anointed there, that's just kind of a fancy word for smear. He spit in the ground, he made mud with the dirt, and he smeared it on the man's eyes. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. That's the meaning of 
that pool of Siloam. Okay, just a question as we go through this story. Why the theatrics? How many in this room would believe that if Jesus had just said to the guy, see, that he could have regained his sight just at Jesus' command? How many believe that's true? Okay, so what's up with the spit in the mud? Kind of gross, right? Like, like, why did Jesus go through the theatrics of this? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe what Jesus is doing is he's saying when you do ministry, you got to get your hands dirty sometimes. Maybe by taking mud and rubbing it on this guy's eyes, it became really personal. It was a personal touch. This man was a beggar. He sat outside the temple every day. I doubt many people stopped and touched him, let alone conversed with him. Maybe Jesus was just making this a very personal moment with the man. I don't know all of the reasons why Jesus did it. But there had to be a purpose behind it. Maybe he was looking at the man and saying this, hey, I'm going to heal you, but you need to get to the pool of Siloam. There's a part of this that you need to do as well. One of the things I've learned being a pastor is you can't want someone to change more than they want it for themselves. That ends in a really bad place. Let me say this. Parents, you can't want your kids to change more than they want to change. Maybe that's a good word for you today. But Jesus touches him. The man goes down, stumbles his way down to the pool of Siloam. And at the end of verse 7, we read this. So he went and he washed and he came back seen. That's like the most underhyped miracle in all of the New Testament. Yeah, so he went, he washed, and he came back seen. Verse 8, you're going to see the next cast members. They're the neighbors. It says this in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. No, I don't think he said it that way, like, I am the man. I think he's like, no, I'm the guy. I was the same guy that was blind. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? Okay, let's just concede for a moment. If you are a neighbor to this man and he spent his whole life begging because he's blind and all of a sudden he's walking around with 20-20 vision, I think you're going to notice that change. That's pretty radical. Would you agree? So the neighbors, they notice the change. What I would say about the neighbors, they're witnesses to change. They've seen somebody else change to the point where they're like, they're arguing like, is this even the same guy? And I'm just going to tell, this, tell you this, in the life of Harvest, I've seen this exact response to people when they are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We've had people come into this church that say, hey, how'd you hear about Harvest? Well, nobody told me about Harvest, but I knew this guy back in high school and he was a jerk. And I found out he was coming to your church. Like, like I never thought that marriage was going to last, but I hear they're doing well. And the guy's a small group. Like, how in the world can that be? I've had parents say, no, I came to this church because my, my 20s kids started coming to Harvest and they got really engaged and I'm seeing changes and I wanted to see what's up. Like, like people witnessing radical transformation, but quite honestly, as far as they get is they're only witnesses to it. They never change themselves. How many of you guys were around on uh, Christmas Eve weekend for the services on Christmas Eve? We had 4,000 people attend those four services at Grand Haven. There was a wonderful God at Work story. Do you guys remember the God at Work story about Ray, if you were there? What a great story. 
The guy's life has been radically transformed. You watched the God at work. Is that as far as it goes for you? Witnessing other people transformed but never experiencing it for yourself? Paul, he's on trial for preaching the gospel. It's recorded in the end of Acts, Acts 26, and he's standing before a king. The king's name is King Agrippa. And he's arguing for the events of Jesus' life and the radical transformation that has happened because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And in verse 26, he turns, he's on trial, he turns to King Agrippa and he says, listen, none of these things have escaped your notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And, And the king turns and says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me not, or would you persuade me to be a Christian? Hey, I've seen the change. If you keep talking, I might even get saved. But I'm not saved. I'm not changed. I, I don't mean this wrong. How absolutely tragic for someone to witness other people being transformed and never participating in that change. The neighbors were witnesses. Verse 11, let's talk about the blind guy for a minute. They've just asked him at the end of verse 10, how were your eyes opened? He says in verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Now, a couple things about what the blind man says here. He says, the man called Jesus. Does that sound personal to you? Like, like, Like he knows the guy? Like there's a relationship there. He goes, yeah, that guy, like that's what other people called him. He's told me what to do, so I did it. So, so here's what's happening at this point in the narrative. We're introduced to the blind man. We hear what he says, gives account to what happened, but he doesn't know Jesus. Quite honestly, he's never seen him. Jesus healed him, sent him to the pool, but when he gets back, he's talking to the neighbors. He doesn't even know where Jesus went. There's no relationship there. He's been healed, but he hasn't been saved. That'll come later in this story. This also sometimes happens at harvest. We'll have people come to our church, and they feel a a, a sense or, or, or some level of healing. Maybe they find community here. They, they make some friends. They plug in. They're in a small group. They start serving. It gives them a sense of community. They feel better. Or, or maybe just coming to church alleviates some of the guilt on their conscience. Well, I must be a good person. I go to church. And what they're doing is they're experiencing a level of healing. Maybe they even listen to some of our teaching and apply it. Like, like maybe they listen to the rules of communication and they start to apply them in their relationship with their spouse and all of a sudden communication improves. And, and maybe there's some healing in that marriage. Maybe there's feeling better because they attend church. They're feeling a sense of healing, but they're not saved. That won't get them home. In essence, what they're doing is they're dealing with the symptoms without ever removing the cancer. And they're treating the problem with a Band-Aid when what's required is surgery. The tumor has got to be removed. Verse 13, 
Now we get listened to the villains in the stories. They brought to the Pharisees, there they are, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. I'm starting to sense a little bit of frustration in this guy. Are you sensing it too? Like when the neighbors asked him what happened, he kind of gave them a longer answer. It's actually 28 words. He put mud on my eyes, I went down to the pool, I washed, I came back, I can see. Now it's only 12 words. Hey, seriously, I'm going to be interrogated about what happened rather than celebrating what did happen? Some of the Pharisees in verse 16 said, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among him. So what's happened is a debate has broken out amongst the Pharisees. There's two issues. The big issue, the major thing, a man that has been blind since birth can now see. And if you went back to the Old Testament, remember, the, prof, the, the Pharisees, they're really good at Old Testament stuff. They know the law. They know the prophets. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 35, 6, describing what would happen when Messiah came, listen to what he says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The first thing on the list, blind men will see. This isn't a... A normal miracle. You don't see this in the Old Testament. Jesus has just healed a blind man. The bell should have gone off for the Pharisees. This could be Messiah, but it doesn't. It's interesting. In, in uh, Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist is imprisoned. He's awaiting death, and he sends messengers to Jesus, and they ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them and says, go tell John everything that you hear and saw. And the first thing on his list is that the blind receive their sight. This is a marker that Jesus is the Messiah. But the Pharisees miss the major thing because they're wrapped up in the minor thing. Major, blind man now sees. Minor, he was healed on the Sabbath. Ooh, that's a problem. Now, now, now Jesus didn't break any Old Testament laws when he spit in the dirt and made mud but he broke rabbinical law. The rabbis had interpreted through the centuries what it meant to work on the Sabbath, and they had determined that making mortar was a mortal sin. You didn't do it. So they've got a problem, and this is creating confusion as to who Jesus is. Process people, that's what the Pharisees were. They put their faith in the process, in the law, and process people always major and minors. I'll be honest with you, the great counterfeit to following Jesus, it isn't secular culture, it's actually religion. People who exchange relationship for a process. And in verse 17, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him being Jesus? What do you say about Jesus since he has opened your eyes? The man's like, he's a prophet. I don't know. I've never seen him. Why are you asking me? You're the religious leaders. He's a prophet. Can I go now? I don't know if you've noticed, but I can now see. You know what I'd like to be doing? Rather than talking to you, I'd like to be out seeing things. You can sense his frustration. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. 
They don't want it to be true. That's, that's the bottom line. So they called his parents, the, the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Do you, do you see their skepticism? So is this your son? You say he was born blind? So first they interrogate the blind man to ask him how he regained his sight. Now they're going after the parents. His parents answered, verse 20, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now, now throughout, we've met the neighbors, we've met the Pharisees, we've now met the parents. Any of these people like really celebrating the fact that this guy's regained his sight? What a nightmare. And one of the problems that you've got is where you've got these false lenses or belief systems that you grab onto, sucks the joy out of everything. The parents, all they're doing is trying to avoid conflict. And I'm going to give a lot of grace to the parents because living in first century Israel was not easy. You were under Roman occupation and they were brutal. Secondly, you had raised a blind son. That couldn't have been easy. They had to be tired. But when confronted by the Pharisees and their interrogation, they basically deflect. I don't want conflict. Just leave me alone. The thing that I want is peace. And some of you in this room, that's the depth of your faith. You think you're saved, but you are not. And the tell is this, that when it comes to having to say the difficult thing, the thing that could create conflict, the thing that could disrupt your peace, you won't say it. Because what's most important to you is that you avoid conflict at any cost. It's interesting. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this to them in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, to follow me, it's going to cost you something. Your, your salvation is by grace. You can't earn that. That costs you nothing. But being a follower of Jesus Christ... And there's a cost to that. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Hey, anybody remember how most of the disciples and apostles died? Do you guys remember? They were martyred. Jesus wasn't lying. He was telling them the truth. In Revelation 21, Jesus is talking about heaven. And he says these words. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolater, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Did you guys notice the first thing on the list? The cowardly. A cowardly faith is not faith at all. It won't get you home. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Hey, religion is great at fear. Religious people serve God out of fear. Saved people serve him out of gratitude for what he's done on their behalf. 
Verse 24. For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, they're going to interrogate this guy another time. They asked him, give glory to God, for we know that this man is a sinner. He responded, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What a great answer. I can't speak to who Jesus is. I've never seen him. You guys can argue it about it all you want, but here's what I know. He touched my eyes, and I was blind, and now I see. They go on and they say, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 26, he answered him, I have told you already you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now that's funny. I, I don't know about you. Sarcasm is my love language. Like, like, like he's poking these guys at this point. He's, he's done with their interrogation. A life of blindness has not stolen his sense of humor. Verse 28, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Here's what they just said. We follow Moses. Moses gave the law. We're rules guys. We're process guys. That's where we've put our hope. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here's what the blind man just did. He dropped the mic. Boom. You guys want to debate whether he's from God or whether he's a sinner. Here's what I can tell you. I can see. Make your strong arguments. A man born, from, or born blind can now see. Verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Cast him out. He was never in. He begged outside the temple. The Pharisees don't know his name. He isn't allowed because of his deformity to go into the temple to worship. He has to remain outside. This guy was never in. And at the end of the day, I'm telling you, process people and law people, it's brutal. They will cast you out if you don't embrace their system. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had, when Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, how great is our Savior? He always goes and finds people that have been cast out, doesn't he? He said to him this, he asked him this question, do you believe in the Son of Man? I love the idea that Jesus seeks out lost people. The man answered, Son of Man, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So I have 40 minutes to preach this message. And this is as important as any message that I'll ever preach in this church. I'm confronting you with a question that you each have to answer. Are you saved? 
why would I spend 35 minutes talking about faulty things that won't get you home and only save five minutes for the criteria on whether and how we judge ourselves to see if we're really safe. Why would I do that? That seems like such a mismanagement of time. And, and here's my answer to that, because it's exactly what the text does. The criteria of whether you're really saved or not, it's not complicated. It's just critical. The, the first thing, there's three things that I would, I'd ask you to evaluate your own heart with. I, I can't judge your heart. I don't want you to be lying to yourselves because there is a judge who can judge your heart. That's coming. That's Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus does with this man is he finds this man and he says, who is the son of man? And then he says, I'm the son of man. He's creating a decision point for this man. The man has to come to a decision. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? There's no more important decision that you'll make in your entire life than that one. Who is Jesus to you? And I can argue from the historical facts. I can make an argument from the fulfillment of prophecy. I can try to convince you that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, the Son of God come to die in your place so that you can receive forgiveness of sins. But the choice is I can argue it till I'm blue in the face. What do you believe? What is true? Have you come to a decision point? What have you done with Jesus? Because that's going to be the first thing you need to ask yourself to answer the question, am I really saved or have I just been lying to myself this whole time? Who is Jesus? It's interesting to me. This is the first moment in the whole chapter where the guy has actually physically seen Jesus. Didn't see him when he was healed. Didn't see him when he got back from the pool. Didn't see him through the interrogations. This is the first time he's actually seen Jesus. This is his moment. This is when he is transformed. He says, who is the Son of Man that I might believe in him? Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And listen to how the man responds. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Who is Jesus? Here's the second thing. Is he Lord? Is he Lord? Listen to the progression through the chapter. In verse 11, the man referred to Jesus. He said, the man they call Jesus. In verse 17, he is a prophet. In verse 33, he's a man from God. Now he calls him Lord. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts 16 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That word Lord isn't just a prefix. It's not like Mr. Jesus, Lord Jesus. It's signifying who you serve. Now he refers to him as Lord. He is king. Is Jesus your Lord? When you come to a crossroads and an intersection between where you want to do one thing, but God would have you do another, what do you most normally decide? Not perfect. It's not based off your works. But what is the driving force that determines what you do? Are you doing the things that God has asked you to do? Are you saved? And then who do you worship? How do you heal spiritual blindness? 
You do it through worship. And that's not just coming once a week and singing. That's a lifestyle where you embrace the fact that he is king, he is Lord. Jesus is who he said that he was. And that's the lens which, with which you view the world and your role in that world. Do you remember those scary verses from Matthew 7? Lord, did we not do these things? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Do you remember that? I started the, the sermon with that. Listen to what Jesus says right after those verses. He follows up to that phrase, depart from me. I never knew you. And says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Bow your heads just for a second. What's the foundation that's underneath your house? What's the difference between the man who built on a rock and who built on the sand? It's the one who hears the words and responds, does them. To be clear, at Harvest, we believe strongly in the doctrine of eternal security. We don't believe that you lose your salvation. And my purpose today was not to talk to someone who was saved and challenge their confidence. My purpose today was to talk to people who have fooled themselves into believing they're saved when they are not. And that's something we're called to examine our hearts about. Who's Jesus to you? Who's Lord? Who do you worship? You need to know that you know that what you believe is real. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these markers. Father, this is serious, heavy stuff. I can feel it in the room. And Father, my prayer would be that if somebody is wrestling and concerned that they've just been going through the motions, that this would be the day that they talk to someone, that they bow the knee, that they acknowledge you as Lord, his Savior, his King. Lives can be transformed. 24 can be very different than 23. Father, don't let us be witnesses of your power, but never embrace it and experience in our own lives. And Father, forgive us when we look at ourselves and say, oh, we're good enough. Father, you are good. You receive and deserve all glory and all praise because you are King, you are Savior, you are Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.